Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm spiffy. I am so happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies, people were scratching their heads uh, about the opening sentence from Wesley Morris's New York Times review of The Little Mermaid, which was exerted by the uh, Times' Twitter account and led to some chuckles and groans and, and dunking. Right, here it is, quote, The new live action, The Little Mermaid, is everything nobody should want in a movie, dutiful and defensive, yet desperate for approval. It reeks of obligation and noble intentions. Joy, fun, mystery, risk, flavor, kink, they're missing, end quote. Yeah, I this is the it's the kink that is freaking people out a little bit, right? I don't know that we necessarily should bemoan the lack of kink in the movie about the teenage girl adapted from a cartoon about an even younger teenage girl. I don't know. Um I don't know. Uh, anyway, conservatives on Twitter. Hold on. I, I got news coming in through my earpiece here. Yes, the conservatives on Twitter pounced on it. They were making fun of Times and Morris for being kind of pervy on Maine. Uh, but they weren't alone. Roy Price, formerly of Amazon Studios, asked on Twitter if it were a typo, if this was uh, what they, they meant to say. Um, it's not... It was not a it's not a typo. It's not a typo, though. I kind of wish it had been because it obscured what could have been an otherwise fruitful conversation about the review in the movie and the state of Hollywood itself. I mean, I, I'm just going to throw this out there. Look, my own priors here. Right. We're in the middle of what is either a social panic or a long overdue reckoning with like the sexualization of younger children in all sorts of spheres of life. And in this setting, in this current social moment, a word like kink is one that we might want to avoid, particularly, again, about a movie um, uh, about a teenage girl uh, adapted from a cartoon that is beloved by children. And also, like, you know, sometimes people forget, uh, but that cartoon itself was also wrapped up in a series of controversies over uh, hidden penises in the movie and the movie's artwork and that sort of thing. I don't know. Do you remember the hidden dildo on the cover of the VHS? Because I remember yeah, absolutely the yes. hidden dildo on the cover of the VHS. Anyway, uh, as I said... One of the all-time uh, great I, I, Disney scandals. I don't want to get hung up on this uh, because it's an annoying thing to get hung up on because Morris, from the left from a left-wing perspective, says a lot of things that folks on the right are saying about the movie as well, right? He kind of notes the comical absurdity of the diversity in this movie, the UN General Assembly of merfolk princesses, the casting of Harvey R. Bardem as King Triton, uh, making Prince Eric's mother black for some reason, the happy multicolored crew of servants running around their Caribbean castle. I, the whole thing is insane. And it closes with this paragraph about the one decent addition to the picture, which is a new song. It's a rap actually it's a it is potentially gasp very problematic it's a duo between aquafina as the bird scuttle and david diggs as the crab sebastian and here's here's how he closes his review quote watching it you realize why the rest of the movie plays it so safe because fun is some risky business this is a witty complex exuberant breathless deeply american number that's also the movie's one moment of unbridled, unabashed delight. And I can't wait to see how Disney's going to apologize for it in 34 years. End quote. I could have written that paragraph. I believe Armand White could have written that paragraph uh, if we want to get fully reactionary here. Look, uh, yes, Morris approaches this review from an unabashedly left-wing perspective. And no, I don't agree with his overall desire or his overall take or the, the need to make it more like The Wiz, right? I don't necessarily agree with all that. 
that. But I, I, there's a lot to wrestle with here and there's a lot to agree with. I think there's a lot of common ground here. People are getting, people on the left and the right alike are getting tired of this like weird corporate diversity, united colors of Benetton thing that we have going on in the movies. And I'm a little sad that no one really wanted to read past the kink. Again, poor choice of words to see where there might be some shared space here. I don't know. Anyway, the controversial part of this, obviously, again, the kink. Alyssa, are you one of those sickos who thinks the Little Mermaid should have been kinkier? You and Wesley Morris, group of group of <laughs> sickos. Um, I will definitely be billing you when someone uh, swats me over this podcast <laughs> <laughs> or calls CPS on me. But look, I think part of what is tricky about making a live action adaptation of The Little Mermaid in a way that is not true of the other live action adaptations is that The Little Mermaid is fundamentally a story about desire, right? It's, you know, it is a story about Ariel's sort of desire and longing for the, you know, the world above the surface that takes specific form in her desire for Eric, right? Who is in many ways of this era of Disney movies, he's sort of the least developed romantic object, right? I mean, he is just sort of an object of lust. He doesn't have much of a personality. There is an extent to which he and the sort of sexy statue of him that sink under the waves and end up in Ariel's grotto are sort of interchangeable, right? I mean, they are objects of desire that she sort of projects herself onto and has to win over. And it is a sort of lustier, more yearning concept than the other Disney movies. And that is a risky thing to bring into the live action adaptation. They still have the, you know, sort of obviously sort of sexualized shots of like the big wave crashing up behind her in part of your world, the sort of hair flip of her in sort of silhouette when she comes out of the water after she gets her legs. But the movie is, you know, sort of, you can't make the yearning and, you know, the sort of lot, the teenage lust of the original Little Mermaid comic more intense in live action form and kind of keep the PG-13 rating, right? I mean, that is an element. It's a PG the, movie, actually. And so that's, I mean, that's, sorry, that's, keep the PG right, and the original yes, was, a, was a G-rated cartoon, right? And so, I mean, this is an, an actual issue, is that in some ways this movie wants to be a PG-13 film and then can't be because it had, I mean, it, it can't push beyond the PG. Right. And the fact that, I mean, it's a place where sort of animation and theme work together to make it permissible to sort of say and project some stuff that is less G-rated and the live action and the sort of inherent, you know, desirousness of the movie end up working against each other. Because if you have to sort of preserve that rating, you can't have the, you know, sort of body heat intensity of it and still have it be a family movie. And so in a way, it gets at the inherent mistake of the live action adaptations, which is an assumption that animation is somehow lesser. And in fact, there are places where animation serves its subject matter and characters and intended purpose better than a live action performance does here. And so, look, I, like, I don't think Morris is wrong to say that this is, I mean, the word kink is obviously going to sort of get people head up you know, literally and metaphorically. But it is a movie about wanting, about yearning, about like 
wanting to sort of be in your body and experience physical sensation um, of a whole range of kinds in a way that is, you know, sort of tricky subject material for family entertainment. The whole, you know, what's a fire and why does it, what's the word burn is like basically, you know, Ariel's riff on like Bruce Springsteen's I'm on fire, which is not at all you know, sort of disguised as a song about like sex and sexual yearning. And so, look, the word was obviously going to set people off on the Internet, but Morris is not wrong that this is, um, you know, this is a story about yearning and desire and some of that desire is sexual and what you give up for it. It is more adult in many ways than the other sort of early 90s Disney stories. And that interacts with live action direction in a very different way than it interacts with animation. I would push back a little bit on your suggestion that this is the only of the live action movies to deal with desire. I mean, like Aladdin is very much a movie about desire in the same almost exact ways about getting the princess to love you to move into a different strata of society even but if it's, it's not less bodily right i mean is it you know is it i, I, I mean, mean i i i will say as a kid i remember watching uh some of those scenes on the flying carpet with aladdin right. and jasmine Sorry. and you know that's not i agree that those scenes all have a lot of sexual heat but um the as a movie it's sort of less bodily, right? I mean, for, among other things, like your main character isn't like either half naked or like entirely naked in a bunch of pivotal scenes, yeah. right? And it's like the yearning is about like the characters are attracted to each other. There is chemistry there. But the sort of fundamental yearning is about sort of class status and security, not like bodily sensation, right? And so I, I, I think it's maybe it's a difference of degree. I mean, just to underline Alyssa's point, there's almost a, a Cronenbergian body horror aspect to The Little Mermaid, which is, again, it's not played as horror. It's not played as gross or anything like that. But it is literally about uh, an unusual body transformation of an adolescent girl in a way that is not true of Aladdin, which is just about here's a here's a poor boy who has a, a, the hots for a rich girl. And yes, there is a there is some heat there, yeah. like Alyssa said, but but uh, there's something the physical metaphors for bodily change and for um, adolescent, not quite sexual desire. It's the thing that comes before you know what that is. Like it's, we don't have a word yeah. for it. So I don't want to make, I don't want to say it's sexual, but like it's, it's like 12 and 13 year olds are, have it's feelings, just a, right? It's just attraction. Yes. It's, it's yearning. Just, yeah. All you got, like, again, I think what part of what people are pushing back on here is again, the kind of like the effort to put adults ideas and ideals in the world of these kids. Like, I think it's fine for adults to talk about their weird kinks. It's always going to be kind of squicky when you start saying, you know, this movie about kids should be kinkier. I, it just is. I like, I don't know. Again, yeah, I, I don't want to get yeah. hung up on this because it's like, it's, it's, it's actually the least interesting part yeah. of his, his review. Uh, Peter, yeah. one of the interesting things that has happened uh, with this movie is there was some pushback when, when, the casting was real. Oh, woke Little Mermaid, Black Ariel. This is, you know, just more Disney propaganda. Uh, but the movie has done OK domestically. Where it has gotten killed is overseas. And the question then becomes, is this a, a thing that studios like Disney have to worry about more kind of racially diverse casting uh, than they do here in the United States? I think there's a there's a strong 
argument to be made for the rest of the world being much more racist than America, weirdly. Your question is whether studios have to because of this. And my answer is, I don't I'm not a studio executive. I don't know what they're going to do based on box office numbers and, you know, international breakdowns from this one movie. What I do know is that historically, it's been pretty clear that Hollywood has, even if they haven't liked to talk about it. I have read multiple reports about casting decisions from the 90s and even into the aughts where movies uh, were where there were often romantic comedies. And they basically said that if you have a black male lead, you can't pair that black male lead with a black woman who is the, the sort of the, the female lead and a potential like sort of a, a love interest because international audiences don't want to see a couple, you know, with two black people in it. And that is something that like used to be just sort of, again, never, like you would never find a, a studio executive saying that on the record in the Hollywood Reporter. Mm-hmm. It was always like sort of just kind of understood and like vague, you know, sometimes a columnist would say, well, this is known. And, you know, again, I'm not in those rooms making those decisions. It's not like you can find hard evidence for, oh, yeah, you know, this this uh, development VP from Disney or from Touchstone or uh, from Universal, like they just, they had a they had a rule against you know, black couples on on screen, but you can kind of see it, especially in bigger um, in, in films that are not intended to be sort of niche movies. And you can see that wariness about certain types of casting um, historically here. So your question is, what are they going to do? I don't know, but I can tell you what they've done in the past when presented with box office numbers that they feel like tell a certain story here. I don't know if you can draw like how much you can draw from like from just one movie here. Uh, This sort of thing is a little bit odd, just in the sense that like The Little Mermaid is a huge cultural touchstone in the United States and just much less so overseas. And so in the same way that like Star Wars doesn't perform really well in China, it's just because Star Wars was never the mass cultural force in China the way it was in the United States. And I think that's true with The Little Mermaid internationally. And so it may have absolutely nothing to do with the casting. I've read that as well. I'm I'm kind of curious because I, I don't understand why The Little Mermaid is less would be less of a inter- overseas phenomenon where whereas a movie like Aladdin or. I mean, even the, you know, Tim Burton, Alice in Wonderland, you know, these are movies that gross. Lion King doing really well over that movie was a global phenomenon always. But I like I'm not entirely sold on that as an explanation. I don't know. I mean, I think what Morris is getting at in the the body of the review is sort of the question of what is diversity for? Right. Right. Um, And in a kid's movie, you know, I can totally see. You know, the value of little girls who haven't historically gotten to see themselves as Disney princesses getting to inhabit that fantasy for an afternoon. And when Peter and I saw the movie at the Alamo, there were a bunch of black families there with little girls. Um, And it was cute. You know, I I hope they enjoyed it. I like I, I felt sort of obligated to not start talking about what I didn't like about the movie until after we left the theater because I didn't want to be a jerk to a bunch of three year olds. You know, they got to learn sometime. Yeah, but do they need to learn, like, walking out of a theater? It's like, you know, grumpy weirdo there to spoil their fun. But I think it's reasonable to ask, it's like, what function does diversity serve in the rest of this movie, right? I mean, I don't know that there's anyone who, like, perhaps I am mistaken about this, so forgive me if you are the person for whom this experience is true, but I don't think there are a lot of people who are like, 
I just really need to see myself as Prince Eric's mother in a remake of The Little Mermaid. And that's where diversity starts to work in weird ways here, right? Because, you know, if part of the story of the sort of colonization of the Caribbean is that like, there's a bunch of slavery and racism and, you know, sort of not great plantation agriculture stuff going on, then what does it mean to make a black woman the queen of one of those kingdoms, right? Like, what does it mean to have this sort of like chipper multi-ethnic society in a movie where you're also talking about like human damage to coral reefs and the need for like a diversified economy and trade, right? The combination of fantastical casting and nods at sort of more real world script stuff function together in strange ways to end up blurring the racial story of the Caribbean. And that's not to say that like, <laughs> should be like Little Mermaid 2, Chattel Slavier uh, <laughs> would be, you know, the appropriate <laughs> movie to make here, but it ends up functioning in some very strange ways in a way that like a movie that leaves out all of the sort of like here are real world impacts of trade and humans on the ocean. Like maybe it doesn't have that if it's like sort of clearly not the Caribbean and it's like, Prince Eric of Fantasylandia, yeah. who's just like on a boat because he likes being on boats and the companies of sailors, and he's not trying to improve his country's trade routes. <laughs> the thing this reminds me of is in how in Frozen 2, they tried to do this whole like, the indigenous population has the magical powers, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, but also they need Queen Elsa to come in and rule them. Just bizarre, weird stuff. I don't know. I, Peter, go ahead. The very best part of Morris's review, I really like the kicker, which you already read, but uh, he he raises some of the questions about the oddness of the racial diversity in this film, right? Like, he talks about, you know, the, the sort of the questions that, like, having a black queen raises about, like, uh, is she the queen of the slave ships? Is that, and she's just like, what, like, yeah. stuff like that. And then he says, this is my favorite line, it's really a misery to notice these things. Yeah. A nine-year-old wouldn't, but one reason we have this remake is that former nine-year-olds raised on and besotted with these original Disney movies grew up and had questions. But this is the thing is the movie is worse in some ways because if you are old enough to, to be able to kind of have these questions in your head, then you just spend the whole time kind of wondering, what? What is going on here? What is this implying? Because the implications are either kind of awful or bizarre or just flat out don't make any sense. Yeah, look, we're, we'll get to the actual review here, here in a second, but I, I will say as, as a brief introduction to that, every change they make to this movie makes it worse. Virtually every change made to this movie like damages it in some some very real way. All right, so what do we think? Is it, is it a controversy or a non-troversy? to, you know, talking about the, the kinky fish in the teenage girl mermaid movie. Peter. It's a controversy, but it's uh, probably an intentional one. I suspect Morris knew exactly what he was doing and hoped that it would get more people to read the rest of his review. Alyssa. Yeah, same. I mean, Wesley Morris is nothing if not an incredibly considered writer. Yeah. Um, that I, wasn't like, an accident. He can, uh, yeah, it's yeah. controversy, but like he's a big boy. He it's, can, yeah, it's, he can an, it's an intentional controversy, I think. Um, and what what's... What is interesting about it is that it does get to a very real thing about this movie, and we can talk about this more in the review, which is that this is a movie for adults, I think. And and you see it in a bunch of different ways. You see it in the running times. You see it in the, the fact that there's a title card at the beginning talking about the sadness of mermaid tears. Like, this is not necessarily a movie for children, and that is kind of a running theme of a lot of these Disney live-action 
remakes. Uh, all right, uh, make sure to swing by the bonus episode on Friday. We're gonna be talking about just the awful, the awfulness of all of these live action remakes and what they what they mean for for Hollywood and Disney in particular. Uh, but now we're on to the main event, The Little Mermaid. All right, so here is some math for you. The original Little Mermaid was 83 minutes long. New Little Mermaid is 135 minutes long, even if you account for credits adding an extra eight minutes or so, right? That's still an extra 40 minutes of running time. It's basically 50% longer. Uh, and aside from three new songs, two of which are pretty terrible, one that I mentioned briefly previously, I actually thought it was pretty funny and exuberant, as Wesley Moore said. I'm hard-pressed to figure out exactly what was added and why this needed to be the length that would destroy the attention span of my four-year-old. I'm coming at this from the perspective of being a writer, right? When a writer deals with an editor, the thing that they like about editors, the kind of editor that they like, are the editors who makes trims that you never notice, right? Every once in a while, I'll turn in a piece that's 1,200 words, and it'll come back 300 words shorter, and I'm only slightly aware of what's been taken out, and that's great. As a writer, that's what you want from an editor. You want somebody who's going to make you more concise and uh, less bloated, and get you to the point faster. This movie, and this is true of basically all of the Disney animated remakes, has almost the exact opposite problem. It's like an anti-editor went in there and started adding things that didn't need to be there to beef the story up to unimaginable lengths, but you, you can't really figure out exactly what they were. Like, there's there's no point in this movie where I'm like, oh yeah, that was that's definitely new and bad, and we, we don't need that. You know, this is, it, it was, it's just like a constant addition of little things that you don't need that make it too long. The new Little Mermaid tells the same basic story of the original Little Mermaid, Ariel. She's the daughter of King Triton, is obsessed with the land. After she gets yelled at by her father for ignoring his totally reasonable wishes for her to stay the hell away from the surface, she pouts off to a sea witch who gives her legs in exchange for her voice. If she can get her crush on the land to kiss her within three days, she'll get to stay human forever. If not, she belongs to the witch, a fitting punishment for a daughter who, again, refuses to follow the very reasonable wishes of her father. There are a couple of wrinkles this time around. Uh, Here's the most baffling. As part of the spell cast by Ursula, Ariel cannot remember she needs to kiss Prince Eric which negates the whole reason for her to go to the surface world. Like, I I don't exactly understand what they're doing with this plot point. I can't even tell if it's like an ideological thing or if it's like they're trying to make the story more complicated or more. I, I Nothing about it made any sense to me. I don't know. Maybe one of you guys can explain it to me. But it would it just it is just an addition that makes it more confusing and makes everything more pointless. I don't know. The whole thing is long and dumb. As I mentioned, it's kind of very comically diverse. The like general assembly idea of the mermaids at the end of the movie, like I practically expected like a wheelchair mermaid to pop up. And that that shot at the end where we're seeing the, you know, the land folk and the sea folk come together. It was so it's so funny and bizarre. The only time the movie even briefly sparks to life is when Melissa McCarthy is on screen as the sea witch. Ursula, she's the only one who doesn't look like she's interacting with nothing. Like, everybody in this movie looks like they're talking to nothing. It's really weird and bizarre. And she has genuine comic timing, the likes of which is missing from most of the rest of this movie. I don't know, Peter. I've now had to see this movie twice because I have kids. I went by myself once, took kids second time, and I kind of wanted to die both times. But movie's not for me. Kids more or less liked it. Daughter in particular. I don't know. What did you make of The Little Mermaid? 
Well, that's an interesting way of framing this as on the one hand, you said it's a movie for adults and then you said you hated it and maybe your kids kind of enjoyed it. And I, I think that you've actually sort of maybe inadvertently, but like hit on a real tension here in that this movie is on the one hand being made for and not exactly by, but like for and in consultation with people who are you know, middle-aged or early middle-aged and love the movie as a kid, right? And on the other hand, it's supposed to be a kid's movie, a PG-rated sort of Disney family extravaganza. And it's not at all obvious to me that it works for either group. Because on the one hand, it's totally sort of cautious and uninspired and dutiful in the way that it sort of presents the the famous bits from the original. And then on the other hand, it's so long and it's not fun. Like the, the most fun bits are merely things that worked in the original film that they haven't screwed up. So Ursula works in the original film and Melissa McCarthy doesn't screw up the Ursula uh, character and in fact does a very good job with the role, but is still pretty limited by the fact that she's basically just doing a face and voice impression of the original voice actress. And the under the sea bit is like it's a good song still, but there's something weirdly kind of dead and unenergetic about the presentation of that uh, of that bit even though it's like oh this is lavish it doesn't look it doesn't look cheap it doesn't look underthought it doesn't look it i would didn't say it looked good it looks lavish and expensive and it looks like someone spent a lot of time thinking about how the the camera was going to swirl through all of these different parts of the ocean and have the sea anemones or whatever the hell they are you know start dancing in unison and like all of these sort of different colors someone spent a lot of time on that that's not slapped together but it doesn't look very good either it just looks sort of lavish and sad and that's this whole movie it's lavish and sad, and it doesn't know who it's for, except that it doesn't want to make the people who already loved The Little Mermaid mad. And I don't know. I was a kid who grew up watching the that sort of great run of Disney films from The Little Mermaid through The Lion King and Aladdin. And they were just regular fixtures in my household. I mean, we had the clamshell VHSs, and because I had much younger siblings, even as a teenager, I was very often like the thing I could watch with a much younger uh, brother and sister. The thing I could watch was The Lion King, and I loved that movie, and I loved The Little Mermaid as well. And it was because I, as a like a budding cinephile, I thought they were really well made, and. I get that, like, not everybody who watched The Little Mermaid in 1989 was, like, a future movie critic obsessive type. But at the same time, like, this movie doesn't make a case for its own existence. And this is, I think, maybe the, 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 the biggest problem with it. It differs from the original only in ways that make it worse. And it doesn't make any kind of argument for why it needs to exist except except that it'll probably make, you know, 750 million or a billion dollars or something, even if it somewhat underperforms. I mean, that is the argument for this movie is that it will make Disney money. That is Disney's argument for this movie, which, you know, maybe is true or maybe isn't. I, I, those international numbers have to be very, very worrisome for Disney. I'm, but I'm, on the screen, in the text of the film, it cannot come up with a reason to justify its existence. It's It just no. sort of says, well, I guess the original was pretty good and will try not to screw it up too bad. No. I do think they screw it up at but, times. But they do introduce new elements here, Alyssa. And it, it is, it's very weird, some of the stuff that they have thrown in. The thing about this movie that jumps out most is that Prince Eric is more of a character in this movie than in the original. But he's also kind of more of a character than Ariel. 
Like, his motivations are more interesting and, frankly, more believable than hers. Yeah, like the whole, I would like to improve the welfare of my island nation yeah. by reestablishing its trade routes. Like, I believe know. in neoliberalism, the song. Yeah, it's like, I would I would like for us to have quinine so we don't all have malaria constantly. Like, <laughs> um, Totally. Yeah, at the same time, I, I unfortunately think that Jonah Howard King, who plays Prince Eric, is kind of not great. Like the new song that he gets is like pretty terrible and he doesn't do much to yeah. sell it. And look, this is one of the reasons for having Eric kind of not be a character in the original, right? Like he's just supposed to be a blank hottie who Ariel can like kind of live out her fantasies through and making him a person's like, eh, okay, fine, whatever. You know, he's pretty. We don't need to hear him talk. (laughs) Sexism. Yes. You know what? It's our turn. It's lady's turn to just objectify some cartoon dudes. But look, you know, what is live action and like really putting that in scare quotes for here, right? I mean, and look, everything that involves water at all for the next 20 years is going to be compared to Avatar The Way of Water. Like, no question. But what Avatar The Way of Water does in its sort of like photorealistic imagery is to make stuff that's not real feel real. And what The Little Mermaid does here is take a bunch of stuff that is you know, real in the sense that, like, this sea life exists, but make it sort of hyper real in a way that's off-putting, right? It's like the animation, again, allows you to sort of suspend more disbelief in a sequence like Under the Sea than the sort of live action stuff does here. You know, having that sort of photorealistic imagery enhances the sense of fakery rather than the sense of realism in the same way that, like, the sort of perfect Caribbean island where all races live in harmony and everything. It's like everything, you know, all the stuff on land looks like it's set at a Disney resort, which maybe is good if what you want to sell people on is like going to a Disney resort, but it's not very convincing in terms of being like Ariel is on land and is having this like amazing overpowering experience of like, you know, the above world or whatever, you know, Triton and all of his daughters like, look like they're wearing very good costumes, but they don't necessarily look real, if that makes any sense. And so, you know, artistically, the question of sort of what live action is for is just sort of present in every frame of this movie. And again, like what live action is for is that it will make Disney money. Uh, What a live action is for is that like it will convince you to go to an attraction at a theme park. But artistically, there is no answer to what either the sort of live action or the diversity of the movie is for. You mentioned, you know, how good Melissa McCarthy is in this, and I totally agree. I also think that the movie just does not deserve Javier Bardem's final scene in the movie where he just pulls the, like, I'm a sad dad who has to let my daughter go. Like, Buys her a car, sends her off to college. Yeah, exactly. And he does that beautifully despite the, like, ridiculous facial hair and scales yeah. and whatever else. He has little moments that are good, like when he's interrogating Sebastian about Ariel's suitor. But anytime he is asked to move, it looks terrible. When the camera's tight on his face, it's great because yep. Javier Bardem has a great face. He's a great actor. When he is asked to move around the water, the whole thing looks insane. The whole thing looks dumb and bad. And I just it's it's one of these things where I just can't believe everyone involved with the production here is like, yeah, this is good. This, this I think works. what we need I think this is another remake. 
helmed by James Cameron. James Cameron's Little Mermaid. James Cameron's The Little Mermaid. I would watch that. We need the James Cameron movie about the orcas going around capsizing all the boats. Did you guys yes. see this story? That's yeah. great. Well, this is, well, we'll have to tackle that on another episode sometime. But uh, Controversy uh, or not controversy? Like, are we team orcas? <laughs> we've, we've radicalized the orcas. The orcas got a hold of a copy of Avatar The Way of Water, and we're like, oh, we can do that? I didn't realize, I didn't know that. Awesome. Um, uh, anyway, They're I'm teaching sorry. each I'm other for this. It's amazing. I'm sorry for thinking about a better movie while discussing this terrible movie. All right. Here, I guess, is the the exit question. Do you guys think Aquafina is great or terrible here? Because I could go either way. As Scuttle, the seagull or whatever, she, heron. I don't I don't know what sort of bird that is. Not a, a seagull. She's a bird. I thought it was a seagull, too, but it's not. A, but somebody yelled at me on Twitter. They were like, she's not a seagull in this movie. I'm like, she's clearly a seagull in the. In the original, I don't know what she is here, but but uh, but Sunny, what do you think a heron is? I don't know. I don't know. I said it was a seagull in my review, and somebody yelled at me, so I was like, "Well, I don't know what sort of bird so, this is. Maybe it's." A I have eagle. an answer for you. I don't know. Wikipedia says that the bird is a northern gannet, a seabird, the largest species See? of uh, the gannet family. Can the gannet breathe and sing underwater? In the movies, yes. In this movie, there's a whole, there's like a five minute stretch where this bird is just talking underwater. It's like they forgot. It's like they forgot they were underwater and they were like, oh yeah, we got to get this bird up for some air. It's going to drown. Uh, anyway, I have a serious question about Aquafina because I like, on the one hand, her voice is very annoying. On the other hand, though, it works very well for this character. And I think that the only new addition to this movie that I really like is the rap with her and Sebastian the Crab, written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, of course, the bard of late stage Disney. Like, that sequence worked for me. But I don't know if, if it worked for you guys. Maybe I was just so bludgeoned by the rest of this that I was like, oh, finally, some life, a spark of life. I have something to grab onto here. I did not... Love that, but maybe I was just so like sort of squicked by the movie that I was having an allergic reaction to it. I thought that scene was lively and fun, but it also felt out of place and reminded me of like the ways that the movie felt sort of stitched together and tonally uncertain about itself, except for the fact that it didn't like it. I mean, Morris again addresses this in his review very well, but the movie just sort of feels like it's desperate not to make any mistakes. And that's the only moment in the movie where it feels like maybe we could just try something that might be fun. And okay, they tried something and it is a little bit fun, but it's actually weird to have one moment like that in the movie when the rest of it is so dutiful. But I, I liked Aquafina here. I thought she was very good in this role. I'm not always a, like a huge fan. I don't ever dislike her, but I often, die, you know, I'm like, I don't get why people have fallen over, head over heels for her. But she's, I thought she's great in, in this particular role. The, the distinctiveness of her voice works really, really well. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a nice compliment to, I think it was Buddy Hackett who played the, the scuttle in the original, right? I Anyway. I like her and I like that number. And it's the it's the only time it's like that sequence was shot by an entirely different director. And I was like, oh, this movie is good. I like watching this movie. Can we make can we get an 80 minute version? That's just the whoever put this sequence together. That would be great. Lin-Manuel Miranda should script it and James Cameron should direct it. I don't know. I don't know that James Cameron is the right. No, I want him to this, because James but, Cameron would uh, give us mermaids who actually move in water in ways that like make visual sense. He could produce. He's got 
five other Avatar movies that okay, he fine. needs to make. If he, if we want him to finish fine. so that then, series so he, before so he he's can dead. produce and Robert Rodriguez can make it, and it'll not quite as look not quite as good. Robert Rodriguez is making Battle Angel Alita Part Two. Stop it! You're <laughs> you're ruining my whole plan for James Cameron's Empire. All right. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on the Little Mermaid? Peter. Thumbs down. Alyssa. Thumbs down. One of the rare times I'm glad my five year old is not into movies. Thumbs down. Bad movie. Stop it, Disney. Stop making these. All right, that's it for this week's show. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday where we will continue to tell Disney to stop making these dumb movies. Uh, tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sonny Bunch. I'll give you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Bye.